0: and, and you're, you're new to the series, we we currently find ourselves right in the heart of Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, we, we're told that Paul went on three of them, arguably four if you count the journey to Rome at the end of the, the book of Acts, but we're, we're right in the heart of the second missionary journey this morning, a journey filled with all kinds of crazy ups and downs. We've seen Timothy added to Paul's missionary team. Timothy and Paul would go on to have a, a relationship that would last up until Paul's death, this father-son kind of relationship, this uh, sensei grasshopper sort of relationship where Paul would send Timothy out as a church planter and future elder of the church at Ephesus. We've seen the core group gathering of a new church plant in the city of Philippi, the first Christian church on European soil, a rich lady and her friends, a recently demon-possessed slave girl, and a blue-collar jailer forever changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week, we saw Paul preaching in the synagogues in Thessalonica and Berea, one crowd responding to the gospel with great jealousy and hostility, the other responding with eagerness and belief. Ultimately, the hostility so intense that Paul's forced to leave the city, headed for Athens, where he waits for Silas and Timothy to join him. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. Where we left off last week, verse 16 tells us, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, that is Silas and Timothy, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Any any famous people come out of your hometown? The booming metropolis of my adolescence, Leesburg, Georgia, is the hometown of Luke Bryan. For those of you who don't know, Luke Bryan is a a country music artist. If you steer clear of songs about getting rowdy down by the river or cruising dirt roads on a Friday night, that's who Luke Bryan is. He's kind of a big deal in my hometown. I, I wish I could have found the yearbook, but I actually have, uh, we went to the same school all the way up through graduating high school. And for one year, we were in the same elementary school. And I thought, man, if I could get those side-by-side pictures of of like Jamie in third grade and Luke Bryan in fifth, that would be amazing. But couldn't find the yearbook in time. Sorry about that. But the the reason I bring that up is because the city of Athens is, a, is an incredibly fascinating City, if you were from Athens, first century Athens, it could be said of your hometown that it produced some of the most well-known thinkers of all time, men like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, men whose books we would sit with and our minds would hurt after just a few pages. Considered the, the birthplace of Western civilization, the birthplace of democracy, of music, of ethics, of theater, of medicine. like This city was a big deal. First century Athens, a culture lover's dream, a culture maker's dream. It's in this culture, ep, cultural epicenter that, that Paul finds himself waiting for his friends. I don't know what you'd be inclined to do. I'd probably just go catch a few shows, but not the Apostle Paul, he's, he's in it to win it. He's, he's left his friends behind in Berea as the intensity of the crowds have gotten to be a little too much. And as he makes his way around the city, Paul gets an eye full of of statues and temples devoted to and and representing a pantheon of gods, of Greek gods, including the, the Parthenon built in honor of Athena. Just one of the many fascinating buildings that still stand to this day. It was said in the city of Athens, that it was actually easier to find a God than a man. And that's no over-exaggeration. There were roughly 10,000 people living in the city of Athens at the time and roughly 30,000 statues of various gods. That's crazy, right? Along with all those temples and statues, Paul most certainly saw the idolatry of the intellect, the idolatry of the arts, the idolatry of commerce, Maybe even the idolatry of cultural achievement. Look at us. Look at what we've built here. Derek Thomas, in his commentary on Acts 17, he says, Athens was the great cultural center of the world, but the Athenians employed their artistry in the service of creature worship rather than the worship of the creator. Paul sees both graven idols and heart idols, and we're told that that the overwhelmingly visible idolatry troubles Paul in his spirit. That word in verse 16 translated provoked in many of our Bibles, his spirit was provoked within him. It comes from the same root word used to describe the sharp disagreement with Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 15. It's also the same word used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to describe God's response to Israel's idolatry over and over and over again. It's this this intermingling of righteous indignation and brokenhearted compassion, you might say that Paul's angry as he looks out on this city of culture makers and sees that none of it is intended for the glory of God, and he's brokenhearted in his longing for something better for for this crowd of people. So that, we're told in verse 17, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, we're told. That here in Athens, Paul Paul does what we've seen him do before, right? He, he preaches the gospel in the Jewish synagogue on the day of assembly, but we also see him here preaching the gospel in the marketplace daily, which in and of itself is a declaration that Christianity is not a privatized worldview. It's not to be kept hidden behind the walls of religious assemblies or to say, like, it's just me and Jesus. This is individualistic sort of thing. No, Christianity has a place in the streets, Acts 17 tells us in the marketplace of ideas, beyond these walls. That the Christian worldview has something to say to every sphere of life, every aspect of human existence. I love the way the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once put it. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That the gospel informs the way we work, The gospel informs the way we play. The gospel informs the way we think. The gospel informs the way we create. The gospel informs the way we evangelize, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure that there are certainly some things that that came about as a result of Paul's preaching in the, in the Jewish synagogues, but we're not really told much about that. Luke focuses our attention more on the, the marketplace interaction in the city of Athens. It's in the marketplace where Paul comes into contact with a crowd of philosophers, a really unique class of people. City of Athens was, was filled with this leisure class of people with a lot of time on their hands, a lot of time on their hands, and some devoted a great deal of that time to questions of human existence, Questions of knowledge, questions of reason, so forth and so on. Good things to, to think about for sure. The Epicureans, we know, looking back at the history of philosophy, they believed that, that life was all about chance and that there was no afterlife. This sort of kind of deistic view of the world, believing that even if the gods existed, they were so far removed from man, and so you were free to live for yourself, but not in, in this sort of sensual or, or overindulging kind of way, rather with, with some level of restraint, but nonetheless, you're kind of your own sovereign. The Stoics believe that everything is divine and that destiny is essentially whatever, whatever hand you're dealt, this kind of fatalistic view of the world. They believe that, that enduring pain and difficulty without grumbling or showing significant emotion was a good thing. The true wisdom uh, is equated with indifference to pleasure and pain. If you can somehow escape those high-intensity feelings, you are better off for it. Both groups trying to deal with the unraveled nature of the world, right, yet in very different ways. The Epicureans through simple pleasure-seeking, the Stoics through apathy and indifference, both in desperate need of Jesus Christ. And so we're told the second half of verse 18, some said, what does what this babbler wish to say? Really nice crowd, right? What does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians, verse 21, and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. In a crowd of philosophical thinkers, Paul preaches Jesus Christ and the resurrection. You just imagine the the thoughts running through their heads, right? The divine taking on flesh, resurrection from the dead. What in the world is this dude talking about? They refer to Paul as a babbler, that word carrying with this picture of a a baby chick pecking at at seeds, meaning that, that they perceive Paul to lack originality, that he's a grabber of ideas from various places and just brings them together to formulate something that he wants to appear uh, as novel, as new. Which ironically is exactly what the Athenians are guilty of, is it not? Spending their time, we're told, in nothing except telling or hearing something new. One of my favorite authors, N.D. Wilson, is a book I've referred to it from the stage before, Notes from the Tilta Whirl. Fantastic read. And in it, he talks about philosophy. And this is what he says. I love this. He says, Philosophia, which is the Greek word for the brotherly love of wisdom, he says, Philosophia is a perfectly clean pastime for boys and girls. But philosophy proper has become a place to hide, a place to pursue immortality through never going out of print by being foggy enough that room is always left for discussion for future dissertations. That's what's going on in the city of Athens. It's not the Apostle Paul who's the babbler in this situation, in this episode. The Apostle Paul is happy to bring clarity of thought into the philosophical fogginess of Athens, you might say. He's happy to close the books on questions of human existence and knowledge and reason. It's the Athenian philosophers who are the babblers, happy to live in the fog, always learning, always talking, but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Due to the fact that they they live for the ongoing discussion, it drives them, they're happy to give Paul a hearing here. And so they bring him to the Areopagus, which means the hill of Ares, Ares was the the Greek god of war. That's no subtle detail here. There's a war for souls taking place in Acts chapter 17. Talking about the, the same context in which Socrates had once been brought on trial for this perceived corrupting of the youth of society in the city of Athens and was found guilty and forced to drink poison hemlock. That's where this scene takes place with the Apostle Paul. Some argue that that Luke is showing Paul to be a first century Socrates standing trial for his Christian beliefs and ideas in the marketplace of Athens. And, and, And this is not an easy crowd, right? It'd be like presenting a reasoned case for Christianity to the most liberal faculty members of Harvard or Cambridge. Verse 22 tells us, and this is bold, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, the hill of Ares, the god of war, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. All right, let me, do, let me stop there for a second. Paul perceives his audience to be religious, a crowd of worshipers. He, he doesn't present Thomas Aquinas' five arguments for the existence of God. He understands them to have a knowledge of God already through creation and providence. We see Paul talk about this later in the book of Romans chapter one, verse 19, where he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, to, to human beings, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. One of the uh, spokespersons of of the enlightenment back in the, the 18th century, around the time of the French Revolution, said to Christians, we will pull down your steeples so that you will not be reminded of your superstitions to which Christians responded, I love this, yes, but you will not be able to rip the stars out of space. That the evidence of God is everywhere, including first century Athens. So that Paul essentially says, I see that you know that there's a God that you don't know. And I see your perceiving of God evidenced in twisted ways in are filling this God-shaped void within you with idols. Romans 1 goes on to say, Paul says, following those verses we just read, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul says, I I see your objects of worship, I see your altar to the unknown God as a way of covering your basis, just in case you missed one. The true God, Paul says, can be known. He's made himself known. You can know this God. And Paul says, let me tell you about him. Verse 24, Paul says to this crowd, the God who made the world and everything in it. By the way, this is one of the greatest sermons in the Bible. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul declares to them the God of creation and providence, which is a a big deal in the midst of this particular crowd, right? A pushback against the Epicurean belief that God is absent from his creation as Paul declares that it's God who gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's very involved. He's not a deistic God. A pushback against the stoic belief that everything is divine as Paul declares that God made the world and everything in it, establishing this creator, creation, creature distinction. Paul says, I I see the Parthenon over there in all of its beauty, in all of its glory, in all of its splendor. And you know what? It cannot contain my God. It's too small. My God is greater than the things that he's made. And by the way, he's not needy. We are. And our createdness and dependence, even those things reveal the existence of God just as much as anything else. We're dependent upon him to give us our next breath of air, Paul says, And he continues on, verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place so that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Paul declares that not only is God the creator of human beings, with every nation tracing its story back to Adam in the garden, but God is also sovereign over human history, flying in the the face of this Epicurean notion of chance and the stoic ideas of fatalism. A God orchestrating the events of human history with great purpose, with great care, authoring this beautiful story of redemption. Nothing in it is haphazard. That language of feeling their way and finding, those verbs in the original Greek are are in the optative mood. I won't nerd out on you and get too deep into that. Suffice it to say that, that what that means is that feeling their way and finding are possibilities that are uncertain of realization. That in Paul's estimation, there's a God to be found and he can be found, but only through divine revelation ultimately culminating in the beautiful person and work of Jesus Christ. in in his pointing of of the crowd to this Jesus, I love this, one of Paul's tactics is to quote the very Greek writers that his audience would have been incredibly familiar with. The first quote drawn, drawn from a hymn to Zeus. How crazy is that? First quote drawn from a hymn to Zeus, the second drawn from a poem by the Stoic poet Eridus, showing them basically that even in their own cultural expressions, they can't get away from the truth. They cannot escape this God. In the same way that many Hollywood films capture the themes of brokenness and redemption, we can't get away from it, right? We're caught up in this story that's so much bigger than us with inescapable themes, with this inescapable capital S script writer, God. Verse 29, Paul continues, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of, of man. <laughs> like, you, you can dream up and shape God with your imagination, right? We do that today, don't we? Divine genie in a bottle, divine Santa Claus who's making his naughty and nice list. Like we create, we dream him up in our imagination what he's like. As if we're the author and he's some character in our story. No, Paul says, He's the author, and you're the character, and it's his story. But here's the good news Paul says, You're not some throwaway. Like, you're his offspring, made in his image. You've been made with dignity. And if that's true, what that means is that you're more precious than gold or silver or stone. And if you're more precious than gold or silver or stone, then how could you possibly reduce the one who made you to those things? How absurd. He's a big God, and he will not be robbed of his glory. Notice that Paul doesn't affirm their worship of idols and unknown gods. Rather, he wants them to know the God that he knows and worship the God that he worships. And it's not only a desire, but it's a must. Look at verse 30. He says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, I'm happy to meet you where you are, but you can't stay where you are. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Again, to quote Derek Thomas in his commentary on Acts 17, he says, Paul goes for the jugular, (laughs) Far from Athenian religions being a staging post on the way to Jesus Christ, Paul asserts it to be a crime for which the Athenians will be judged and condemned. And the judge is no less, he says, than Jesus Christ himself. That Paul looks out on this Epicurean crowd and says, contrary to your belief, there is an afterlife. And he looks out on the Stoics in the crowd. And he says, contrary to your belief, the afterlife is not one in which everyone simply becomes one with the universe. No, the one and same Jesus Christ whom God raised from the dead, Paul says, he's alive and he will someday return. He's coming back. It's this Revelation 19 picture of Jesus riding in on a white horse, making war on those who refuse to follow him so that he might establish eternal peace for his people in the safety and beauty of the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem. I alluded to it just a few moments ago. It's one of the great sermons in all of the Bible. You talk about a truth-saturated sermon, right? Some, some treat this sermon as though it's a little on the lighter side compared to the other sermons in the book of Acts, but this, this sermon, this declaration has so many massive fundamental pillars of truth infused in it. You have the nature of God as transcendent creator, his sovereignty over all of human history, the the reality that human beings are responsible to this God, the righteous indignation and holy judgment of God, and yet his abundant mercy evident in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who died on behalf of sinners. And you have this call to and necessity for all people to repent. I don't know about you, I'd call that a pretty theologically robust sermon undoubtedly filled with ideas that this Athenian crowd would have been hard-pressed not to fundamentally reject, right? We're talking about a crowd whose notions of divinity had no place for a God clothing himself in flesh. This idea of the divine taking on and retaining human form without ceasing to be God, that had no place in Greek philosophy. We're talking about a crowd that fundamentally rejects the idea of resurrection, which is the linchpin of Christianity, by the way, right? Going to uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, if Jesus has been raised from the dead, you're still in your sins and your faith is futile. It's the bottom corner piece in the Christian Jenga game. A notion that this crowd would have fundamentally rejected, which helps to explain verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, that's a cool name, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. See, three responses from the crowd. Some mock, laughing in the face of the apostle Paul, his notions of God in the afterlife, considered lightweight in the marketplace of Greek philosophical ideas. Others say, we'll give you another hearing Some may be driven by nothing more than intellectual curiosity, others in the crosshairs of God's sovereign grace. And then you have this third group who believe, including one who would end up becoming the first Christian bishop and martyr of Athens, Dionysius the Areopagite which is a subtle detail as if to say where the gospel is birthed, God continues to plant churches and establish leaders in these communities, a presence of Christianity in the midst of all kinds of varying beliefs and traditions. It's quite amazing. You would think by the time we get to the second half of Acts chapter 17, that we would go, all right, we've seen a few cities. This is kind of getting boring here. Like, why is this book of the Bible not a little bit shorter? And yet, with every city, we see something unique, something nuanced and incredible that puts God's glory and goodness and grace on display in a different kind of way. It's incredible. I don't know what resonates with you personally in walking through a passage like this, three things come to mind for me. Number one, oh, the kindness, mercy, and grace of God. Right, we, we see a window in the heart of God evidenced in the response of the apostle Paul here in this morning's passage who looked upon the city of Athens with righteous indignation and brokenhearted compassion. That's exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. Every one of us is is guilty of glory thieving, just like the people of Athens, of directing our worship toward created things rather than the creator who alone is worthy of worship, to use that language from Romans 1. That God would have been perfectly just to look upon us with nothing but righteous indignation, destining us for eternal wrath. And yet, the Bible tells us he was filled, too, with brokenhearted compassion, which led him, Jesus Christ, to enter into the marketplace, to use that Act 17 language, the marketplace of human history, where he was mocked, just like the Apostle Paul, where he bore our idolatry and glory thieving in his body on the tree, where he drank the cup of God's wrath that was due us down to the dregs, every last drop that the cross is the place where God's mercy and justice beautifully meet, where God's righteous indignation and brokenhearted compassion come together and collide, that God extends his mercy to us as as he punishes our crimes in Jesus. What mercy and grace, right? We're meant to stop for a second, first and foremost, and, and, and acknowledge the wonder. Like, if you're not a Christian, The same Jesus, you need to hear this because Paul said this for himself in the city of Athens. If you're not a Christian, the same Jesus will enter the marketplace of human history again, and there will be no mercy intermingled with justice. That those who have not trusted in Jesus will bear the cup of God's wrath for themselves in that day. That in the words of the apostle Paul, now he commands all people everywhere to repent. If you're not a Christian today, the author of Hebrews says it over and over again, today is the day of salvation. Today, put your trust in the only worthy Savior and King, Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, slow down for a second, if you haven't already, and just marvel for a moment at the kindness, the mercy, and the grace of God in Jesus Christ, which leads me to a second thought. It's the kindness of God that, that leads us to repentance, repentance that in light of the mercy, the brokenhearted compassion, the grace of God toward us in Jesus Christ, how can we not put ourselves in the Athenian crowd? Asking God to to show us our idols so that we might turn from them. Out of love for our savior and king, desiring that he get the glory that's due him. My youngest daughter, Quinn, it was bring your daughter to work day. And so she came, she's three years old. She came into the auditorium, we were doing sound check She's up here on stage with me because she's a stage one clinger. And as I'm sound checking, I'm taking this opportunity to kind of try to explain this morning's passage to a three-year-old. And I basically said, baby, this morning we're gonna be in the city of Athens where Paul showed up on the scene and he looked around and he saw people loving pizza and not Jesus. He saw people loving Skittles and not Jesus. He saw people loving gummy bears and not Jesus, and Paul deeply loved Jesus, and he wanted them to love and know this Jesus, and so he told them about this Jesus, and some people mocked him and said, we have no place for your Jesus in the midst of our idols, and, and others were willing to give him a, a listen, and, and still others believed, and they came to know and, and love this Jesus, and they found that you can love Jesus and pizza It's just that Jesus is meant to be your primary love and the only one worthy of your worship, those other things, good things, that when we make them ultimate things, we actually find ourselves in greater bondage, not in freedom and joy. And so, baby, I want you to love Jesus first and foremost, and I want Skittles and pizza and gummy bears to be second loves for you that remain in the realm of good things and not ultimate things, because only Jesus is ultimate. That was my best shot at Acts 17, verses 16 through 34 with a three-year-old. And so let me bring some three-year-old theology into the auditorium this morning and ask the question, if Paul stepped into the marketplace of our lives, of our families, what might provoke him in his spirit? What, what, are, what are the Skittles that we cling to? What, what are the gummy bears that we hang on to a little too tightly What might fill him with righteous indignation, the Apostle Paul? Where might he see our worship being directed to things other than God? What might fill him with brokenhearted compassion? Where might he look in on our lives and wish for something better than what we functionally bought into? God's, let me say this way, God's grace is big enough to meet us in the midst of our idolatry, but his grace is also too big to leave us there. That in light of the wondrous gospel of grace, we have to wrestle with in a passage like this, where might God be calling us to repent, to, to flee from idols? 1 John chapter 5, verses 20 and 21 says, we know that God the Son has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Like we have Christ. We've experienced and tasted his grace. We know this Jesus, John says. And thus, he closes out verse 21 Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The kindness of the Lord in Jesus Christ leads us to repentance, to keep ourselves from idols, to flee. Making things ultimate that aren't Jesus. Third thought, and this has to do with evangelism, it's the emblazoning of the gospel on our hearts that makes us effective missionaries in the marketplace. What do I mean by that? Well, The colder we grow to the gospel, I would argue, the more likely we'll be to enter the marketplace with only righteous indignation on the one hand or only brokenhearted compassion on the other hand. Maybe obnoxious and harsh with others, infuriated that God's not getting his due yet lacking compassion and humility or cowardly and fearful with others, longing for something better for them but lacking the the honesty and courage to tell them the truth about this Jesus. Jesus. Tim Keller, in his commentary on this morning's passage, he says... The cross is the only spot in any religion that shows us on the one hand, a God so utterly and completely and relentlessly and absolutely and infallibly holy, there's the righteous indignation, that he has to pour out wrath and divine justice on evil and sin. And at the very same time, the cross shows us a God who is so absolutely and completely and utterly and relentlessly and perfectly and infallibly loving, there's the brokenhearted compassion, that he does do so on his own son rather than lose us. That's the both end of the gospel. Why are so many of us professing Christians either obnoxious on the one hand or cowardly on the other as it pertains to our evangelism? It's because we've gotten away from the cross and our thinking. Paul was effective in the marketplace because the emblazoning of the gospel on his heart fanned into flame both an indignation and a compassion. Both a boldness and a humility. Keller goes on to say, if you're only indignant or compassionate, if you're only one or the other, you won't change anybody's life. You'll go out into the marketplace and you'll be utterly ineffective. This, he says, is the kind of person who will make smart decisions in the marketplace. A person filled with holy jealousy, loving zeal. Somebody who thinks, and here's the both and, Somebody who thinks so highly of God and so highly of people that he wants them in each other's arms. And he's outraged, there's the one, and he's brokenhearted until he sees it. Only the gospel can outrage us at the idolatry all around us and at the very same time break our hearts. And so my prayer for us, and this is the benediction to come moments from now, is this. May we never stop plumbing the depths of the beauty of the gospel. May the gospel be so emblazoned on our hearts that we both flee from idols and run to the marketplace with courage and compassion. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship this God that Paul reveals, that we talk about all the time in this place, as James said earlier, he's not unknown, he's made himself known to us, he's divinely revealed himself to us, and we have an opportunity to worship this God who's not aloof, yes, he is distinct from us as creator and yet he's so immensely, incredibly involved in our lives in every detail of our story I pray that you know this God. Again, if you're not a Christian, I pray that you, you see the beauty of who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that you see the justice and mercy of God colliding in the cross of Jesus Christ and that you see that as beautiful and you leave this place worshiping this Jesus this morning. And if you are a Christian, I pray that, again, you, you hit the pause button for just a moment and stop and go, what, what wondrous grace, what wondrous grace. And that it causes you to, to sit for a moment and ask, what are my Skittles? What are my gummy bears? What do I need to lay down at the altar, bring back into a place of good rather than ultimate so that Christ alone gets the glory as, as the only king and sovereign of my life? And I pray that we leave this place with the gospel emblazoned on our hearts and that it actually does the impact our decisions in the marketplace because, again, Christianity is not a privatized worldview. It has a place in the streets, and we're about to step into them roughly about, I don't know, 15, 20, 30 minutes from now, and there are going to be opportunities for us to leverage this gospel in the lives of other people that we connect with. We're going to continue to worship now in a number of ways that we do so week in and week out in this place. Um, The communion tables will be open. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Open until the end of the service. So anytime between now and the time we we close out this service, you're welcome to come and take the bread representing Jesus's broken body and dip it in the cup representing his shed blood. There'll be people in the back of the auditorium to pray with and for you if you'd like prayer. And then we have an opportunity yet again to collectively sing to this great and good and glorious God of grace.